This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. Night and Day by Virginia Woolf. Chapter 28. Like a strain of music, the effect of Catherine's presence slowly died from the room in which Ralph sat alone. The music had ceased in the rapture of its melody. He strained to catch the faintest lingering echoes. For a moment the memory lulled him into peace, but soon it failed, and he paced the room so hungry for the sound to come again that he was conscious of no other desire left in life. She had gone without speaking. Abruptly a chasm had been cut in his course, down which the tide of his being plunged in disorder, fell upon rocks, flung itself to destruction. The distress had an effect of physical ruin and disaster. He trembled, he was white, he felt exhausted, as if by a great physical effort. He sank at last into a chair standing opposite her empty one, and marked mechanically, with his eye upon the clock, how she went farther and farther from him, was home now, and now doubtless again with Rodney. But it was long before he could realize these facts. The immense desire for her presence churned his senses into foam, into froth, into a haze of emotion that removed all facts from his grasp, and gave him a strange sense of distance, even from the material shapes of wall and window by which he was surrounded. The prospect of the future, now that the strength of his passion was revealed to him, appalled him. The marriage would take place in September, she had said. That allowed him, then, six full months in which to undergo these terrible extremes of emotion, six months of torture, and after that the silence of the grave, the isolation of the insane, the exile of the damned. At best, a life from which the chief good was knowingly and forever excluded. An impartial judge might have assured him that his chief hope of recovery lay in this mystic temper, which identified a living woman with much that no human beings long possess in the eyes of each other. She would pass, and the desire for her vanish, but his belief in what she stood for, detached from her, would remain. This line of thought offered, perhaps, some respite, and possessed of a brain that had its station considerably above the tumult of the senses, he tried to reduce the vague and wandering incoherency of his emotions to order. The sense of self-preservation was strong in him, and Catherine herself had strangely revived it by convincing him that his family deserved and needed all his strength. She was right, and for their sake, if not for his own, this passion, which could bear no fruit, must be cut off, uprooted, shown to be as visionary and baseless as she had maintained. The best way of achieving this was not to run away from her, but to face her, and having steeped himself in her qualities, to convince his reason that they were, as she assured him, not those that he imagined. She was a practical woman, a domestic wife for an inferior poet, endowed with romantic beauty by some freak of unintelligent nature. No doubt her beauty itself would not stand examination. He had the means of settling this point, at least. He possessed a book of photographs from the Greek statues. The head of a goddess, if the lower part were concealed, had often given him the ecstasy of being in Catherine's presence. He took it down from the shelf and found the picture. To this he added a note from her, bidding him to meet her at the zoo. He had a flower which he had picked at Kew to teach her botany. Such were his relics. He placed them before him, and set himself to visualize her so clearly that no deception or delusion was possible. In a second he could see her, with the sun slanting across her dress, coming towards him down the green walk at Kew. 
He made her sit upon the seat beside him. He heard her voice, so low and yet so decided in its tone. She spoke reasonably of indifferent matters. He could see her faults and analyze her virtues. His pulse became quieter, and his brain increased in clarity. This time she could not escape him. The illusion of her presence became more and more complete. They seemed to pass in and out of each other's minds, questioning and answering. The utmost fullness of communion seemed to be theirs. Thus united, he felt himself raised to an eminence, exalted, and filled with a power of achievement such as he had never known in singleness. Once more he told over, conscientiously, her faults, both of face and character. They were clearly known to him, but they merged themselves in the flawless union that was born of their association. They surveyed life to its uttermost limits. How deep it was when looked at from this height! How sublime! How the commonest things moved him almost to tears! Thus he forgot the inevitable limitations. He forgot her absence. He thought it of no account whether she married him or another. Nothing mattered, save that she should exist, and that he should love her. Some words of these reflections were uttered aloud, and it happened that among them were the words, I love her. It was the first time that he had used the word love to describe his feeling. Madness, romance, hallucination. He had called it by these names before, but having apparently by accident stumbled upon the word love, he repeated it again and again with a sense of revelation. But I'm in love with you, he exclaimed, with something like dismay. He leant against the window-sill, looking over the city as she had looked. Everything had become miraculously different and completely distinct. His feelings were justified and needed no further explanation. But he must impart them to someone, because his discovery was so important that it concerned other people, too. Shutting the book of Greek photographs and hiding his relics, he ran downstairs, snatched his coat, and passed out of doors. The lamps were being lit, but the streets were dark enough and empty enough to let him walk his fastest, and to talk aloud as he walked. He had no doubt where he was going. He was going to find Mary Dashett. The desire to share what he felt with someone who understood it was so imperious that he did not question it. He was soon in her street. He ran up the stairs leading to her flat two steps at a time, and it never crossed his mind that she might not be at home. As he rang her bell, he seemed to himself to be announcing the presence of something wonderful that was separate from himself, and gave him power and authority over all other people. Mary came to the door after a moment's pause. He was perfectly silent, and in the dusk his face looked completely white. He followed her into her room. "'Do you know each other?' she said, to his extreme surprise, for he had counted on finding her alone. A young man rose and said that he knew Ralph by sight. "'We were just going through some papers,' said Mary. "'Mr. Bassnett has to help me, because I don't know much about my work yet. It's the new society,' she explained. "'I'm the secretary. I'm no longer at Russell Square.' The voice in which she gave this information was so constrained as to sound almost harsh. "'What are your aims?' said Ralph. He looked neither at Mary nor at Mr. Bassnett. Mr. Bassnett thought he had seldom seen a more disagreeable or formidable man than this friend of Mary's, this sarcastic-looking, white-faced Mr. Denham, who seemed to demand, as if by right, an account of their proposals, and to criticize them before he had heard them. Nevertheless, he explained his projects as clearly as he could, and knew that he wished Mr. Denham to think well of them. 
"'I see,' said Ralph when he had done. "'Do you know, Mary?' he suddenly remarked. "'I believe I'm in for a cold. Have you any quinine?' The look which he cast at her frightened her. It expressed mutely, perhaps without his own consciousness, something deep, wild, and passionate. She left the room at once. Her heart beat fast at the knowledge of Ralph's presence, but it beat with pain and with an extraordinary fear. She stood listening for a moment to the voices in the next room. "'Of course I agree with you,' she heard Ralph say in this strange voice to Mr. Bassnett. "'But there's more that might be done. Have you seen Judson, for instance? You should make a point of getting him.' Mary returned with the guinine. "'Judson's address?' Mr. Bassnett inquired pulling out his notebook and preparing to write. For twenty minutes, perhaps, he wrote down names, addresses, and other suggestions that Ralph dictated to him. Then, when Ralph fell silent, Mr. Bassnett felt that his presence was not desired, and thanking Ralph for his help, with a sense that he was very young and ignorant compared with him, he said good-bye. "'Mary,' said Ralph, directly Mr. Bassnett had shut the door, and they were alone together. "'Mary,' he repeated, but the old difficulty of speaking to Mary without reserve prevented him from continuing. His desire to proclaim his love for Catherine was still strong in him, but he had felt, directly he saw Mary, that he could not share it with her. The feeling increased as he sat talking to Mr. Bassnett, and yet all the time he was thinking of Catherine, and marvelling at his love. The tone in which he spoke Mary's name was harsh. "'What is it, Ralph?' she asked, startled by his tone. She looked at him anxiously, and her little frown showed that she was trying painfully to understand him, and was puzzled. He could feel her groping for his meaning, and he was annoyed with her, and thought how he had always found her slow, painstaking, and clumsy. He had behaved badly to her, too, which made his irritation the more acute. Without waiting for him to answer, she rose as if his answer were indifferent to her, and began to put in order some papers that Mr. Bassnett had left on the table. She hummed a scrap of a tune under her breath, and moved about the room as if she were occupied in making things tidy, and had no other concern. "'You'll stay and dine?' she said casually, returning to her seat. "'No,' Ralph replied. She did not press him further. They sat side by side without speaking, and Mary reached her hand for her work-basket, and took out her sewing and threaded a needle. "'That's a clever young man,' Ralph observed, referring to Mr. Bassnett. I'm glad you thought so. It's tremendously interesting work, and considering everything, I think we've done very well. But I'm inclined to agree with you. We ought to try to be more conciliatory. We're absurdly strict. It's difficult to see that there may be sense in what one's opponents say, though they are one's opponents. Horace Bassnett is certainly too uncompromising. I mustn't forget to see that he writes that letter to Judson. You're too busy, I suppose, to come on to our committee." She spoke in the most impersonal manner. "'I may be out of town,' Ralph replied, with equal distance of manner. "'Our executive meets every week, of course,' she observed. "'But some of our members don't come more than once a month. Members of Parliament are the worst. It was a mistake, I think, to ask them.' She went on sewing in silence. "'You've not taken your quinine,' she said, looking up and seeing the tabloids upon the mantelpiece. "'I don't want it,' said Ralph shortly. "'Well, you know best,' she replied tranquilly. "'Mary, I'm a brute,' he exclaimed. "'Here I come, and waste your time, and do nothing but make myself disagreeable.' "'A cold coming on does make one feel wretched,' she replied. 
I've not got a cold. That was a lie. There's nothing the matter with me. I'm mad, I suppose. I ought to have had the decency to keep away. But I wanted to see you. I wanted to tell you. I'm in love, Mary. He spoke the word, but as he spoke it, it seemed robbed of substance. In love, are you? she said quietly. I'm glad, Ralph. I suppose I'm in love. Anyhow, I'm out of my mind. I can't think. I can't work. I don't care a hang for anything in the world. Good heavens, Mary, I'm in torment. One moment I'm happy, next I'm miserable. I hate her for half an hour. Then I'd give my whole life to be with her for ten minutes. All the time I don't know what I feel or why I feel it. It's insanity. And yet it's perfectly reasonable. Can you make any sense of it? Can you see what's happened? I, I'm raving, I know. Don't listen, Mary. Go on with your work. He rose and began, as usual, to pace up and down the room. He knew that what he had just said bore very little resemblance to what he felt, for Mary's presence acted upon him like a very strong magnet, drawing from him certain expressions which were not those he made use of when he spoke to himself, nor did they represent his deepest feelings. He felt a little contempt for himself at having spoken thus, but somehow he had been forced into speech. "'Do sit down,' said Mary, suddenly. "'You make me so—' She spoke with unusual irritability, and Ralph, noticing it with surprise, sat down at once. "'You haven't told me her name. You'd rather not, I suppose.' "'Her name? Catherine Hilberry.' "'But she's engaged. To Rodney. They're to be married in September.' "'I see,' said Mary. But in truth the calm of his manner, now that he was sitting down once more, wrapped her in the presence of something which she felt to be so strong, so mysterious, so incalculable, that she scarcely dared to attempt to intercept it by any word or question that she was able to frame. She looked at Ralph blankly, with a kind of awe in her face, her lips slightly parted and her brows raised. He was apparently quite unconscious of her gaze. Then, as if she could look no longer, she leant back in her chair and half-closed her eyes. The distance between them hurt her terribly. One thing after another came into her mind, tempting her to assail Ralph with questions, to force him to confide in her, and to enjoy once more his intimacy. But she rejected every impulse, for she could not speak without doing violence to some reserve which had grown between them, putting them a little far from each other, so that he seemed to her dignified and remote, like a person she no longer knew well. "'Is there anything I could do for you?' she asked gently, and even with courtesy, at length. "'You could see her. No, that's not what I want. You mustn't bother about me, Mary.' He, too, spoke very gently. "'I'm afraid no third person can do anything to help,' she added. "'No,' he shook his head. "'Catherine was saying to-day how lonely we are.' She saw the effort with which he spoke Catherine's name, and believed that he forced himself to make amends now for his concealment in the past. At any rate, she was conscious of no anger against him, but rather of a deep pity for one condemned to suffer as she had suffered. But in the case of Catherine it was different. She was indignant with Catherine. "'There's always work,' she said a little aggressively. Ralph moved directly. "'Do you want to be working now?' he asked. "'No, no, it's Sunday,' she replied. "'I was thinking of Catherine. She doesn't understand about work. She's never had to. She doesn't know what work is. I've only found out myself quite lately. But it's the thing that saves one, I'm sure of that.' "'There are other things, aren't there?' he hesitated. "'Nothing that one can count upon,' she returned. 
After all, other people—she stopped, but forced herself to go on. Where should I be now if I hadn't got to go to my office every day? Thousands of people would tell you the same thing, thousands of women. I tell you, work is the only thing that saved me, Ralph. He set his mouth as if her words rained blows on him. He looked as if he had made up his mind to bear anything she might say in silence. He had deserved it, and there would be relief in having to bear it. But she broke off, and rose as if to fetch something from the next room. Before she reached the door, she turned back, and stood facing him, self-possessed, and yet defiant and formidable in her composure. "'It's all turned out splendidly for me,' she said. "'It will for you, too. I'm sure of that. Because, after all, Catherine is worth it.' "'Mary!' he exclaimed. But her head was turned away, and he could not say what he wished to say. "'Mary, you're splendid,' he concluded. She faced him as he spoke, and gave him her hand. She had suffered and relinquished. She had seen her future turn from one of infinite promise to one of barrenness, and yet somehow, over what she scarcely knew, and with what results she could hardly foretell, she had conquered. With Ralph's eyes upon her, smiling straight back at him serenely and proudly, she knew for the first time that she had conquered. She let him kiss her hand. The streets were empty enough on Sunday night, and if the Sabbath, and the domestic amusements proper to the Sabbath, had not kept people indoors, a high strong wind might very probably have done so. Ralph Denham was aware of a tumult in the street, much in accordance with his own sensations. The gusts, sweeping along the strand, seemed at the same time to blow a clear space across the sky in which stars appeared, and for a short time the quick-speeding silver moon riding through clouds, as if they were waves of water surging round her and over her. They swamped her, but she emerged. They broke over her and covered her again. She issued forth, indomitable. In the country fields all the wreckage of winter was being dispersed, the dead leaves, the withered bracken, the dry and discolored grass. But no bud would be broken, nor would the new stalks that showed above the earth take any harm, and perhaps to-morrow a line of blue or yellow would show through a slit in their green. But the whirl of the atmosphere alone was in Denham's mood, and what of star or blossom appeared was only as a light gleaming for a second upon heaped waves fast following each other. He had not been able to speak to Mary, though for a moment he had come near enough to be tantalized by a wonderful possibility of understanding. But the desire to communicate something of the very greatest importance possessed him completely. He still wished to bestow this gift upon some other human being. He sought their company. More by instinct than by conscious choice, he took the direction which led to Rodney's rooms. He knocked loudly upon his door, but no one answered. He rang the bell. It took him some time to accept the fact that Rodney was out. When he could no longer pretend that the sound of the wind in the old building was the sound of someone rising from his chair, he ran downstairs again, as if his goal had been altered and only just revealed to him. He walked in the direction of Chelsea. But physical fatigue, for he had not dined and had tramped both far and fast, made him sit for a moment upon a seat on the embankment. One of the regular occupants of those seats, an elderly man who had drunk himself, probably, out of work and lodging, drifted up, begged a match, and sat down beside him. It was a windy night, he said. Times were hard. Some long story of bad luck and injustice followed, told so often that the man seemed to be talking to himself, or perhaps the neglect of his audience 
had long made any attempt to catch their attention seemed scarcely worth while. When he began to speak, Ralph had a wild desire to talk to him, to question him, to make him understand. He did, in fact, interrupt him at one point, but it was useless. The ancient story of failure, ill luck, undeserved disaster, went down the wind, disconnected syllables flying past Ralph's ears, with a queer alternation of loudness and faintness, as if, at certain moments, the man's memory of his wrongs revived and then flagged, dying down at last into a grumble of resignation, which seemed to represent a final lapse into the accustomed despair. The unhappy voice afflicted Ralph, but it also angered him, and when the elderly man refused to listen and mumbled on, an odd image came to his mind of a lighthouse besieged by the flying bodies of lost birds, who were dashed senseless by the gale against the glass. He had a strange sensation that he was both lighthouse and bird. He was steadfast and brilliant, and at the same time he was whirled, with all other things, senseless against the glass. He got up, left his tribute of silver, and pressed on, with the wind against him. The image of the lighthouse and the storm, full of birds, persisted, taking the place of more definite thoughts, as he walked past the Houses of Parliament and down Grosvenor Road, by the side of the river. In his state of physical fatigue, details merged themselves in the vaster prospect, of which the flying gloom and the intermittent lights of lamp-posts and private houses were the outward token. But he never lost his sense of walking in the direction of Catherine's house. He took it for granted that something would then happen, and as he walked on, his mind became more and more full of pleasure and expectancy. Within a certain radius of her house, the streets came under the influence of her presence. Each house had an individuality known to Ralph, because of the tremendous individuality of the house in which she lived. For some yards before reaching the Hillbury's door, he walked in a trance of pleasure, but when he reached it and pushed the gate of the little garden open, he hesitated. He did not know what to do next. There was no hurry, however, for the outside of the house held pleasure enough to last him some time longer. He crossed the road and leant against the balustrade of the embankment, fixing his eyes upon the house. Lights burnt in the three long windows of the drawing-room. The space of the room behind became, in Ralph's vision, the centre of the dark, flying wilderness of the world. The justification for the welter of confusion surrounding it, the steady light which cast its beams, like those of a lighthouse, with searching composure over the trackless waste. In this little sanctuary were gathered together several different people, but their identity was dissolved in a general glory of something that might, perhaps, be called civilization. At any rate, all dryness, all safety, all that stood up above the surge and preserved a consciousness of its own, was centered in the drawing-room of the Hillburys. Its purpose was beneficent, and yet so far above his level as to have something austere about it, a light that cast itself out and yet kept itself aloof. Then he began, in his mind, to distinguish different individuals within, consciously refusing as yet to attack the figure of Catherine. His thoughts lingered over Mrs. Hilbury and Cassandra, and then he turned to Rodney and Mr. Hilbury. Physically, he saw them bathe in that steady flow of yellow light which filled the long oblongs of the windows. In their movements they were beautiful, and in their speech he figured a reserve of meaning, unspoken but understood. At length, after all this half-conscious selection and arrangement, he allowed himself to approach the figure of Catherine herself, and instantly the scene was flooded with excitement. 
He did not see her in the body. He seemed curiously to see her as a shape of light. The light itself, he seemed, simplified and exhausted as he was, to be like one of those lost birds fascinated by the lighthouse and held to the glass by the splendor of the blaze. These thoughts drove him to tramp a beat up and down the pavement before the Hillbury's gate. He did not trouble himself to make any plans for the future. Something of an unknown kind would decide both the coming year and the coming hour. Now and again, in his vigil, he sought the light in the long windows, or glanced at the ray which gilded a few leaves and a few blades of grass in the little garden. For a long time the light burnt without changing. He had just reached the limit of his beat and was turning, when the front door opened, and the aspect of the house was entirely changed. A black figure came down the little pathway and paused at the gate. Denham understood instantly that it was Rodney. Without hesitation, and conscious only of a great friendliness for anyone coming from that lighted room, he walked straight up to him and stopped him. In the flurry of the wind, Rodney was taken aback, and for the moment tried to press on, muttering something, as if he suspected a demand upon his charity. "'Goodness, Denham, what are you doing here?' he exclaimed, recognizing him. Ralph mumbled something about being on his way home. They walked on together, though Rodney walked quick enough to make it plain that he had no wish for company. He was very unhappy. That afternoon Cassandra had repulsed him. He had tried to explain to her the difficulties of the situation, and to suggest the nature of his feelings for her, without saying anything definite or anything offensive to her. But he had lost his head. Under the goad of Catherine's ridicule he had said too much, and Cassandra, superb in her dignity and severity, had refused to hear another word, and threatened an immediate return to her home. His agitation, after an evening spent between the two women, was extreme. Moreover, he could not help suspecting that Ralph was wandering near the Hillbury's house, at this hour, for reasons connected with Catherine. There was probably some understanding between them, not that anything of the kind mattered to him now. He was convinced that he had never cared for any one save Cassandra, and Catherine's future was no concern of his. Aloud he said shortly that he was very tired and wished to find a cab. But on Sunday night on the embankment cabs were hard to come by, and Rodney found himself constrained to walk some distance, at any rate, in Denham's company. Denham maintained his silence. Rodney's irritation lapsed. He found the silence oddly suggestive of the good masculine qualities which he much respected, and had at this moment great reason to need. After the mystery, difficulty, and uncertainty of dealing with the other sex, intercourse with one's own is apt to have a composing and even ennobling influence, since plain speaking is possible and subterfuges of no avail. Rodney, too, was much in need of a confidant. Catherine, despite her promises of help, had failed him at the critical moment. She had gone off with Denham. She was, perhaps, tormenting Denham as she had tormented him. How grave and stable he seemed! speaking little and walking firmly, compared with what Rodney knew of his own torments and indecisions. He began to cast about for some way of telling the story of his relations with Catherine and Cassandra that would not lower him in Denham's eyes. It then occurred to him that, perhaps, Catherine herself had confided in Denham. They had something in common. It was likely that they had discussed him that very afternoon. The desire to discover what they had said of him now became uppermost in his mind. He recalled Catherine's laugh. He remembered that she had gone laughing to walk with Denham. "'Did you stay long after we'd left?' he asked abruptly. 
No, we went back to my house. This seemed to confirm Rodney's belief that he had been discussed. He turned over the unpalatable idea for a while in silence. Women are incomprehensible creatures, Denham, he then exclaimed. Hum, said Denham, who seemed to himself possessed of complete understanding, not merely of women, but of the entire universe. He could read Rodney, too, like a book. He knew that he was unhappy, and he pitied him, and wished to help him. You say something, and they fly into a passion, or, for no reason at all, they laugh. I take it that no amount of education will. The remainder of the sentence was lost in the high wind, against which they had to struggle, but Denham understood that he referred to Catherine's laughter, and that the memory of it was still hurting him. In comparison with Rodney, Denham felt himself very secure. He saw Rodney as one of the lost birds dashed senseless against the glass, one of the flying bodies of which the air was full. But he and Catherine were alone together, aloft, splendid, and luminous with a twofold radiance. He pitied the unstable creature beside him. He felt a desire to protect him, exposed without the knowledge which made his own way so direct. They were united, as the adventurous are united, though one reaches the goal and the other perishes by the way. You couldn't laugh at someone you cared for. This sentence, apparently addressed to no other human being, reached Denham's ears. The wind seemed to muffle it and fly away with it directly. Had Rodney spoken these words? You love her. Was that his own voice, which seemed to sound in the air several yards in front of him? I've suffered tortures, Denham, tortures. Yes, yes, I know that. She's laughed at me. Never to me. The wind blew a space between the words, blew them so far away that they seemed unspoken. How I've loved her! This was certainly spoken by the man at Denham's side. The voice had all the marks of Rodney's character, and recalled, with strange vividness, his personal appearance. Denham could see him against the blank buildings and towers of the horizon. He saw him dignified, exalted, and tragic, as he might have appeared, thinking of Catherine alone in his rooms at night. "'I'm in love with Catherine myself. That is why I'm here to-night.' Ralph spoke distinctly and deliberately as if Rodney's confession had made this statement necessary. Rodney exclaimed something inarticulate. "'Ah! I've always known it!' he cried. "'I've known it from the first. You'll marry her!' The cry had a note of despair in it. Again the wind intercepted their words. They said no more. At length they drew up beneath a lamp-post simultaneously. "'My God, Denham, what fools we both are!' Rodney exclaimed. They looked at each other queerly in the light of the lamp. Fools! They seemed to confess to each other the extreme depths of their folly. For the moment, under the lamp-post, they seemed to be aware of some common knowledge which did away with the possibility of rivalry, and made them feel more sympathy for each other than for anyone else in the world, giving simultaneously a little nod, as if in confirmation of this understanding, they parted without speaking again. End of chapter 28